Good morning. And as we get, begin with prayer, I want to remember my father-in-law, Ralph, who uh, a couple weeks ago had a stroke and was at the hospital and stabilized and went to rehab and, and then had an extension of the stroke this past week and is back in the hospital again. And so um, he's not doing real well. So remember him in, in our prayers. Uh, gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for, for your love, for Jesus, uh, for the fact that this world is not the end and there's a better world to come. I want to remember Ralph, and you will send your angels and spirit to comfort him and help him to find peace and and help him to uh, stabilize as you know uh, is best in these circumstances. Give Christy the strength to be able to tolerate and handle the decisions that she has to make at this time. Be with us today as we study. I pray that you will enlighten our minds, uh, lead us uh, to fulfill the purpose you have called us to do, to enlighten the world for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So our, our lesson today is uh, Lesson 6 in the Crucible with Christ, and the title is Struggling with All Energy. In the first two paragraphs, it says, A man and a woman sat together on a talk show. Both had experienced the murder of a child. The woman's son had been murdered 20 years before, and her anger and bitterness were as great as ever. The man was totally different. His daughter had been murdered by terrorists a few years earlier. He spoke about forgiveness toward the killers, about how God had transformed his hurt, However terrible the pain, this man had become an illustration of how God can bring healing to the darkest moments of our lives. How can the two people respond so differently? What are your thoughts? I think a lot has to do with the type of personality they have, how they deal with something. Uh, The personality, she says, uh, may, may have a lot to do with it. Does being a Christian help one cope with trauma and loss? Absolutely. Does prayer help? What if one were to write a computer program that had their computer pray for them several times each day? W- would that help? No. no. Well, why not? You're, we're sending prayers to God, aren't we? No. W- what if we don't write a pr- computer program? We have computer, we have beads, prayer beads, and we have a prayer on each bead, and we just rub those beads through our hands every time uh, we ro- rotate the beads, uh, symbolizing prayer. Would that help? What, what if we made a prayer wheel? And, and these prayer beads and prayer wheels are things people have done. Uh, and we write a prayer on a wheel, and we spin the wheel. And every time the wheel goes around, we believe that a prayer ascends to God. Would that help us in a situation like this? If we believe it did, it might. And how would it help us? Would it, would it every time a prayer is, is, uh, is uh, circles on the wheel, uh, something goes up before God, and God takes note and, and, and says, oh, this person, they, they spun that wheel for three hours, you know, I was going to quit, but, but uh, they, for three hours worth of spinning, they, they deserve some intervention. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of seeing all these prayers ascend off this wheel. I'm going to have to do something. So I'll shut that wheel down. <laughs> is that how it works? Is that how it helps deal with trauma and loss? What is the purpose of prayer? What is it? What's its purpose? If we're going to pray, I suspect that the person who, who, who experienced grace and for the forgiving attitude, I suspect they probably had some prayer life going on there. What would be the purpose of prayer? What's its Change us. Oh, change us, she said. Both, both of you said change us. Does it matter to whom one prays? Does that matter? Does it matter for what one prays? Yes. Yes. Does that matter? Does it matter with what attitude one prays? Yes. Well, in the aftermath of September 11, 2001, the, the trauma, and of course, the, the 
the attack of the Trade Center in, in New York. University of Michigan examined prayer and coping in those who survived that event in New York. Uh, one year later, they looked at adjustment, and, and they, they discovered that those who uh, prayed regularly had more optimism and were coping better with the trauma than those who didn't pray. But then the same university did a study of Muslim refugees from Kosovo and Bosnia who went through um, the, the, the war there, the Bosnia-Herzegovina War. 60% of them met criteria for PTSD, from the trauma and the loss, and lost many family members and friends. 77% of them had negative forms of prayer, such as praying that their enemies would suffer and God would take vengeance upon their enemies. They prayed regularly, and they prayed for, for, for that. And they, what they discovered in the study was that the Muslims who had positive forms of prayer Praying with high levels of optimism, for, with hope, uh, w- w- praying for forgiveness, uh, for God's grace. Uh, those I- individuals adjusted better, coped better, had more optimism, more hope. They had, uh, they were healthier than those who had the negative forms of prayer. Is praying alone enough? Does it matter what one prays for? So what makes the difference in a person's response to trauma? Personality? Does, it, does, does the view a person holds about the meaning of what happened, why it happened? What, is there a purpose involved? Where, what was God? D- does God care, not care? Does he love, does he not love? Was it punishment? What, 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 was, was, was I doing good work and I got attacked by the enemy? Does it matter how we interpret the events? How we cope? Yes, you had a hand up. I've had a lot of uh, issues lately, and I was under stress, and I couldn't eat, and I realized this is from the not from the Lord, and I just made the choice not to feel that way. The choice not to feel that way, and that this is not what the Lord wanted, and immediately I felt different. Yesterday something happened, and on the phone, I interpreted that as a negative situation. Later, and I couldn't eat my breakfast, and I was just stressed again. I didn't pass that test. Again, the Lord's helping me to pass it. Later, I talked to someone else on the phone, and they told me, no, it was a different interpretation. And immediately I felt so much better. I said, I should have done it on my own. I didn't need someone else to tell me that. So but the Lord loved you enough to have that person call you and help you with it, didn't he? <laughs> right. I mean, we, we, you know, about cognitive therapy. We so, have to do it ourselves. You, you've, you've highlighted a very important point. I teach my patients this all the time. There are events, events, things that happen, trauma, and this story's here, children murdered, horrible, horrible events. And then there are interpretations of events, how we interpret them. God is punishing me. I can't tell how many people come to me. Uh, something traumatic, something negative has happened in their life. A child wasn't murdered. A child got a negative medical diagnosis, something bad medically, seizures or, or cancer or something. And, and my patient comes to me, why is God punishing me by giving my child cancer? No, the event, cancer. God punishing me by giving my child cancer, that's an interpretation, isn't it? They're not the same. And so this is what you're pointing out. The event, phone call, interpretation, 
has a significant impact. Does the view one holds about God, who God is, what sin is, God's response to the sin problem, the future to come, God's trustworthiness, does our baseline understanding of these things prepare us in a way uh, how we'll interpret events when events happen? Absolutely. If one is angry at God because something's happened and it was very hurtful, and, and 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 you're honest, Response is you're mad at God because of some loss. Is it okay to yell at God and tell him off? Yes. Or would that be sin? No. But he already knows your heart anyway. He knows how you feel even if you don't express it. Did you hear the wisdom of Tina? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so if you're really angry in your heart at God, but you believe it's sin to talk back to God or, to, or, or, or say, say, tell him how mad you are, so you go to him and you pray for all the missionaries in Africa, <laughs> do you think you're fooling God what's really in your heart? <laughs> okay? And so you think about if your own child was angry at you for some reason, and the reason really doesn't matter. They're angry at you, but you still love them and you want reconciliation. You want to work it out with them. What is it you want for them to do? Would you rather they come and tell you how angry, even if they're so immature and childlike, they can only yell and have a tantrum, would you rather them still come and interact with you, or would you rather them ignore you and refuse to talk? Yeah, that's what God wants. As long as we're willing at some point, after we've gotten it off our chest, willing to let him explain and have a conversation with him. What does God want from us? He wants our love and trust. He wants our understanding. And if we're angry at God about something, I can tell you, there's something you're not understanding. There's some way we're interpreting things in a way. Have you ever heard the idea that if if God could take you to heaven and allow you to sit where he sits, looking out over the landscape of the universe and reality, past, present, and future, and you can see what he sees in relation to your life, you would not choose one thing different for your life than he has chosen for you. When I had that idea come to me, it helped me with a lot of difficult moments. Why is this happening? I don't know right now, but do I trust him enough to know that he's got my back? And that's the bigger question. Why does God allow such terrible things as murder to happen in the world at all? Doesn't he have the power to stop all murder? Notice I said power. Doesn't he have power to stop all murder? Why doesn't he? Freedom, but yes, yes. The point being, if he used power to stop it all, what what, what is immediately lost? Freedom is lost, but then what else is immediately lost? Love is lost, and what else is lost? All individuality of, of personhood, your identity. You're only a, a uh, simulation at that point. You're not a free, sentient, and sapient being anymore. You're just a program, a puppet, a robot at that point. And robots can't love. That's why he doesn't do it. Sunday's lesson, it says, uh, first two paragraphs, Have you ever prayed, please God, make me good? But little seems to change. How is it possible that we can pray for God's great transforming power to work within us, but our lives seem to remain the same? 
We know that God has unlimited supernatural resources that he so eagerly and freely offers us. We really want to take advantage of it, of it all, and yet our lives don't seem to change in a way that matches what God is offering. In the next paragraph, why? One reason is disturbingly simple. While the Spirit has unlimited power to transform us, it is possible by our choice to resist what God can do. It is possible by our choice to resist what God can do. Who is responsible for the following? I'm going to run through some things. You tell me. Who is responsible? Is it God? God this is God's responsibility. Is it, is it our responsibility? Is it a joint responsibility? Changing a sinner's heart from disloyalty to God to loyalty to God. Who's responsible for that? Joint. Most of the answers were, were combined, joint, com, uh, combination. Can a sinner change their heart on their own? Can God change a sinner's heart without the cooperation of the sinner? Does God have the power to, power to force a change? Yes. But we already established if he did that, it, w- it would erase your individuality. It wouldn't be you. You'd be just a, a program. Do we as human beings have the ability to brainwash someone, to force a change of mind or attitude through some form of technology, m- chemical manipulation, programming, uh, controlling of food, atmosphere, lighting, sleep? Uh, in a way that uh, a person who might have been uh, negative and, and hostile to us becomes compliant and passive. Do we have the ability to do that to somebody? Last two years. <laughs> what would happen to such a person if we did that to them? What would happen to their individuality, their, the image of God within them? Will God use such methods to make us compliant with his kingdom? Never. I think one of the things that is associated with that is that they break their spirit. Break their spirit, yeah. And in parenting, we are not to break the will of our children. We are not to break their will. Break the will, and all, because everything depends on the right action of the will. You break the will, they become dependent upon some other Beings will to tell them what to do. We're not to do that. Who, uh, get back to the, the responsibility. Who is the source of truth? God. It's kind of rhetorical. We all know it's God. We are not the source of truth. Can we comprehend godly truth without the aid of the Holy Spirit? No, we can't. Do we have a responsibility, though, to search for truth? with an honest heart, seeking to actually know what it is? Do we have responsibility to have that attitude of mind and desire and action? Or is it, well, if God wants me to know the truth, I'll have a dream tonight, and I'll know it. I don't have to study. I don't have to search. I don't have to think. I don't have to reason. God will just download it while I'm sleeping. Is that how it works? Or does it require our active, thoughtful, reasoning, studying. Does the Bible talk about studying to prove, to show thyself approved? Yes. Okay. Do we then, after we come to understand truth as revealed to us by God in Scripture and other places, do we have a responsibility to share that truth and our understanding of it with others? And then who is responsible when, when some new idea, I, I say idea because the new idea could be truth, 
But we are also confronted with ideas that turn out not to be the truth, aren't we? Aren't we confronted with ideas of all kinds? Okay. So when a new idea comes to you, who is responsible for wrestling it out and deciding whether it's true or not? You are. You have that. Every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. Romans 14.5. And then once you have wrestled out an idea, thought it through, reasoned it, checked the evidence, has gone to Scripture, uh, maybe got some wise counsel, but at the end of the day, you've retained the governance of self to think and conclude for yourself. At the end of the day, after you've concluded, who's responsible for acting on that truth? There's a difference between comprehending truth and acting on it. Are they the same? They're different. Many smokers comprehend the dangers of smoking. And they can even tell their children, don't ever start it. It's the worst habit ever. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's bad, bad. But they don't act on the truth for themselves. There's many truths like that. So once you comprehend a truth, whatever it might be, who's responsible for acting on it? From where does the power come to succeed in the action? Do you, is the power to succeed? You've comprehended it. You understand it. You choose to act on it. Is it now all in your strength? It's up to you to win it? No. So truth originates with God. The power to be victorious comes from. The power for victory comes from. From God. But from where does the choice come from? From yourself. God will never choose for you. Never, never, never. So God, here's how the Holy Spirit works. Holy Spirit is spirit of love and truth. He's revealing truth to all of our minds and our own personal journeys, wherever we are, in ways that we can comprehend for the next step in our personal advancement. The Holy Spirit is shining truth into our minds. Also, the Holy Spirit will give conviction. Truth and conviction of, of what the choice is, what, what we need to change, what we need to comprehend. We will have clarity. But then the Holy Spirit leaves us completely free to choose to say yes, no, I'll get back to you. How many times have you told the Holy Spirit, I'll get back to you? I got, I got other things don't, going right now. But, but I'm not saying no, I'm just not ready yet. I've done that. The Holy Spirit's patient, kind. Usually when I say that, I end up in some quagmire and quicksand and say, Lord, throw me a rope, please. <laughs> Okay, I'm ready to follow now. Have you ever done that? Okay. And, and, and then, but when you make the choice, say yes, and you choose it, that's when you receive divine power to succeed. You don't get the power until you choose the truth. And many people trip this up and they pray and they get the enlightenment and they pray for the power, but they actually haven't yet chosen to walk the path. Are there any Bible examples of this? Joshua 3, 15 to 16. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the waters from the upstream stopped flowing and piled up. In other words, you've heard the song, the waters never part until your feet get wet. You've got to step out in, 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 in following the Lord's direction. And when you do, he provides the divine interventions and necessary to succeed. But you don't get the divine interventions until you're committed to following where he leads. The waters in the story are real. I think this is a real story. It really happened. Historically, real water stopped. They could march through. The ark would stand in the middle of the river until all the army passed through, and then the ark would come out last, and the waters would flow again. I think the story's real, but it's also a metaphor. 
It's also a metaphor of the obstacles in life as we are on a mission for God and He's calling us to go here or go there. We will find various obstacles in the path. And, and, and when the Lord calls us, if we step out in faith, He parts the waters for us to succeed. Opens the way. Many people know God is calling them. They know what direction to go. But they misunderstand this point. And they see the river, and they wait for a bridge to be built <laughs> before they cross to the other side. And so instead of stepping out in faith and letting God part the waters, they uh, get an engineering consult and start a construction company and begin a fundraiser and a building project. And 14 years later, they tell the Lord they're going to cross that bridge. Rather than stepping out in faith and letting God part the waters and be on the other side today. Now, this is a metaphor. There are real buildings like Solomon's temple that took over 40 years to build and a lot of planning and engineering. And we're not talking about the objective building. We're talking about moving forward in mission. It's an object lesson. Third paragraph says, while the Holy Spirit can bring us the truth about our sinfulness, he cannot make us repent and also can show us the greatest truth about God, but he can never, he cannot force us to believe or obey it. If God did compel us in even the slightest way, we would lose our free will and Satan would accuse God of manipulating our minds and hearts and would thus be, uh, thus be able to accuse God of cheating in the great controversy. When the great controversy broke out in heaven, our father did not compel Satan or any of the angels to believe that he was good and, and just or compel them to repent. And in the Garden of Eden, when so much was at stake, God made the truth about the tree in the middle of the garden very clear, but did not prevent Adam and Eve from exercising their free will to disobey. God will not act any different with us today. So the Spirit presents the truth about God and sin and says, in view of what I have shown you, what will you do now? I think this is well said. Yeah. Uh, you know, some people, like, you might be surprised I get emails that sometimes suggest I'm a little hard on the quarterly. <laughs> but, but, but I praise that this is well said. This is very well said. The Holy Spirit does, and I want to, to note the balance that they got here, because yes, repentance, to lead us to repentance, there's an aspect here where, where the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. There's something wrong with us. We're sick in heart and mind and spirit. We're not how God designed Adam and Eve to be in Eden. There's something wrong. But they link it with another truth that is essential to be linked. Simply convicting of sin, simply preaching about how corrupt sinners we are, does not lead to repentance if it's not linked with another truth. What's the other truth it has to be linked with? And they did it. They linked it. The truth about God. The truth about God. The central issue in the war, is the central issue in the war our sin condition? No. We live in the world, we don't wage wars, the world does, the weapons we fight with are not worldly, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? Everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The war broke out in heaven over God's trustworthiness. It, 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 Adam and Eve sinned because God's trustworthiness was called into question. And so it's always centered on the truth about God. Yes, we need to know we have a sin condition, but we also need to know the quality and character of the one who can remedy our sin condition. If we misrepresent God as authoritarian, dictator-like, 
uh, a being who will punish you. Sin is a legal problem rather than a condition of being out of harmony with how God built life to operate. If we present it like this, we may be convicted of our sin condition, but do we trust him? No, he's going to punish us. He's going to torture us. So we create theologies that hide us from him. He can't see me. I've got Jesus standing in between, covering me with blood or a robe or something. Uh, Jesus knows. I know. We all know I'm not right, but God doesn't know I'm not righteous. I mean, this is, this is a concept that's taught. Why? Because we don't trust God. Or we just toss him out like many people have done. What has caused more people to become, I guess, evolutionists, atheists? The idea of an eternal burning hell. It's irrational that God is love and will torture finite beings for all eternity for a few years of living in sin when they were born with the condition of sin they never even chose to have in the first place. It's an irrational teaching, and so people go, that makes no sense, I don't believe in God at all. So not only do we have to be convicted of sin, we have to be convicted of the truth about God and his kingdom and how it runs. And this is what Paul says in Romans 2.4. What brings us to repentance? The kindness of God leads you to repentance, Romans 2.4. We have to see the kindness, the goodness of who God is, in addition to the fact that there's something wrong with us, and then that leads us to repent. The lesson makes another excellent point about not forcing the will, that God doesn't force the will. He has the power to do so, but we already talked about why he won't. Because to force the will erases and destroys individuality and creates robots, and he won't do that, and their love doesn't, doesn't exist in that place. Love only exists in freedom. Therefore, God will never use power to force people. God is like a loving parent, however, who will discipline, which comes from the root word disciple, meaning to teach, so the interventions are designed to be teaching interventions. He doesn't, he's not a punishing God, comes from the word punitive, okay, exact vengeance upon, that's not who God is. So he disciplines those he loves, but he's not interested in coercing them. Well, then what about the three angels' messages? Does the three angels' messages sound warm and loving and kind and encouraging, or does it sound threatening? The smoke of their torment, fire and brimstone. They'll be tortured. A cup without, uh, a cup of his wrath without any mercy being poured out and the cup of his indignation and so forth and so on. Is, is he threatening? Is he coercing? Do it or else? Well, if you don't have our little magazine, final message of mercy to the world, the three angels, we explain. How do you explain the three angels in a way that show it's actually not God coercing or threatening? We have some here in the room. If you're online watching, you can uh, go and get the digital version. Or if you have a U.S., Australian, or South African uh, post office address, um, we we uh, have them available at no cost. But I encourage you to, to check this out. You'll discover that God is simply describing reality, the design laws of God. The first, and this is the, the, the first angel's message, is about the eternal good news, the eternal gospel. What's the eternal good news? God is love. There it is. God is love. Do you know how many people, if you ask, what's the eternal good news? That we can be saved from sin. Wait a minute. Was there a time we didn't exist, but angels did? Yes, there, there was. Was there a time that Lucifer hadn't yet sinned? So was there a time when we didn't need salvation from sin? No, being it's in yet. 
Was, was there any good news then? No good news. It's all bad news. Or was there still good news? Eternal. Eternal, eternal in the past, eternal in the future. The eternal good news is that God is love. He always was. Always, he changes not. That news has never changed. Satan lied about it, but the eternal good news is what it's always been, who God is. That's the, that's the first angel. And, and at this time in history, that message says, hey, give him glory and be in awe of him because it's finally come. The time in human history has come. For what? The hour of God's judgment has come. Meaning? <laughs> well said. She said, our judgment of him. The hour of God's judgment has come. Does that mean God's judicial magistrate reviewing legal records through a human law court, like we have law courts, or does it mean that God has been lied about through, through history by his enemy? And finally, a time in history has come that enough truth about him has been recovered that we can make a right judgment about him. And Paul says in Romans 3, 4, God, may you be proved right when you are judged, Romans 3, 4. It's always been about God. And this time in history, the message to go forward is God is not like a human dictator. God is not an imperial magistrate. Magistrate. God is not a maker, a maker just making up willy-nilly rules and then enforces them with external threats and punishment. God is the, is the creator of reality. And so we worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea. We worship the one whose laws are the laws that sustain all reality. Stop judging him to be like a Caesar. See him as the creator. And then... Accepting the first angel, you go to the second angel, and you come out of Babylon. You come out of the human government systems, Babylon, the first nation that had an imperial law code, the Code of Hammurabi, uh, that enforces it through, through punishment. And all the systems of the world and every kingdom of the world works this way. We come out of those systems, and we again worship him who made the heavens. And if you don't, if you don't like the God who is the creator and whose laws are design laws, if you don't want to leave Babylon and you prefer a God who makes up laws and will ultimately have a judicial magistrate and inflict punishments on people, then you will reap the natural consequences of the third angel's message. And by beholding, we become changed, the law of worship. You will become like that law, and you'll be marked. You'll be marked in your character to be beastly if you worship the beast, but you will be sealed in your character to be godly if you accept the the eternal good news. And then if you're marked in your character to be beastly, God will give you up. The law of liberty, which is his wrath, letting go, Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness uh, for those who suppress the truth about God. And therefore, God gave them up. He gave them up, gave them up, verse 24, 26, and 28 of Romans 1. And so the law of liberty, God will set you free to reap what you've chosen if you uh, mark yourself in character be beastly. And what do you reap? Well, then you reap the, the full weight where he no longer seals you or insulates you or hides you from his infinite presence when he comes. And it says right in the text that they are tortured with, with divine fire. The, the Greek is um, theon, from, uh, which, which is translated brimstone or, or eternal fire. But it says it right in the text, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. God reveals his unveiled glory. You get pictures of it all through Scripture. And the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands stand in this. If you have rejected the gospel about God, 
If you have instead worshipped the imperial dictator that comes out of a Babylonian-type system, an authoritarian rule maker that punishes rule breakers, if you re- if don't worship the creator, then you, then you will become beastly in character, and he will leave you free and abandon you and no longer intercede for you to protect you from those consequences, and you will stand in his unveiled, life-giving glory, and the full weight of infinite truth and love will burn into you, and you will have full awareness of what you have chosen, who you are in character, in contrast to the goodness of God. You will have awareness of every sin you've ever committed. You'll have awareness of all the harm you've caused to the people. You will have no insulation from the guilt and the shame and the self-loathing that unremedied sin brings into the heart and mind because that's who you actually are, and that is the truth of the matter. And it will cause a terrible weeping and gnashing and agony, and the smoke of their torment rises forever. Smoke is what's left after everything's burned up. The memory of what happened, the lessons taught, will never be forgotten for all eternity. It's a beautiful, life-saving message of how God actually built reality. There's no threat involved. There's no threat. Any more than there's a threat to say if you smoke two packs a day, you're going to get lung cancer and heart disease. There's no threat. You're free, you're free to do it or not do it. Same here. God is warning. God will never use his power. The point is, this warning is not God coercing. He's not threatening. There is a being who will coerce and threaten. There's a being who will take your liberties from you. There's a being who would love you to be a puppet that he controls, that doesn't want you to be in control of your own mind. There is a being who likes to govern from authoritarian power, who who wants to have a a serf class serve him and empower him. And, and And his pundits, human pundits on earth, look through human history. They end up running the human governments. Elites exploiting the masses for the benefit of the elites, whereas Christ, though he was equal with God, did not think equality with God was something grasped, but humbled himself, sacrificing himself all the way to the grave for the purpose of uplifting us. It's a complete opposite. Well, have you seen the warning signs that the Bible predicts before the second coming of Christ? You've been watching. Have you seen? Do you remember Jesus gave a, uh, a prophecy about weaving together the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 with the second coming of Christ. And, and he gave a prophecy that the Christians, when they saw the abomination that causes desolation surrounding the city, they were to flee. And the Roman army came down, surrounded the city in AD 70, and then they pulled back for a brief time, and all the Christians fled, and they weren't caught up in it. This is an object lesson for us. Jerusalem represents the beautiful land, the people of God, the righteous. They're caught up in a war between satanic forces. Understand that the Jewish leadership that crucified Christ were not representing the kingdom of God. Get your mind around that. Yes, that nation was called by God, but those people that were running that nation, they were not on God's team. The Roman army were not representing the people of God or God's kingdom. Two forces, the people of God were mixed in amongst them, and when the warning came, they fled. God worked th- historically through the Jewish nation to bring truths to the world, the inspired writers retaining the, the, the scriptures and spreading them and making them available through history, the sanctuary message, a health message, the Sabbath, uh, looking forward to the Advent, an Advent message of the Advent of the Messiah. And from that group, from that organization, came individuals who accepted Jesus 
and took the gospel to the world. Yet that organization and its leadership rebelled, rejected Christ, crucified him, and a warning was given by Christ for all who were not part of the rebellion but were still faithful to God that when they saw this warning sign, they were to leave the city, and they did, and they weren't caught up in it. We stand in a similar position. King of the South, liberalism, godlessness, is attacking King of the North, religious imperialism. And the warning sign recently went out. I don't know if you saw it. It was a global warning, just like the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. And then it pulled back. And we're in the pullback right now. It's time to flee. What was the warning? And by the way, the fleeing is not a physical fleeing. Because there's no place geographically to flee to. The COVID mandates, which coerced the consciences of millions if not billions and were justified under the lie that they were necessary to save lives, billions have believed this lie these lies, resulting in families and communities and churches being divided. Millions, if not billions, have been harmed. Deaths have increased because of these mandates. In my talk, uh, the, uh, the nine steps and so forth, I actually give the documentation. Deaths have increased because of these interventions beyond what we can actually calculate method. Lives were not saved by what would happen. Harms came. Not only were the mandates morally and ethically wrong, they violated the medical and scientific laws of health. They injured and harmed. You see, you can never avoid the truth. You can only delay the day you deal with it. The truth always comes home to bear. For those who couldn't see the medical and physiological truths around COVID, and there's many because they're not scientists. You don't have to read the literature. You have experts saying this and experts saying that. It was all the science was very confusing for many. I understand that. But the methods should not have been. If you understand the methods of God versus the methods of God's enemy, it became very plain. Methods. God's methods. Truth. Presented in love. Concerned to help others in an open environment for investigation, inquiry, discussion, leaving people free, every person be fully persuaded in their own mind to make up their own choice. That's a godly method for things. But, but one side of this, this issue consistently used lies, propaganda, distortion, coercion, censoring, deplatforming, threats, intimidation, firing from jobs, uh, financial uh, incentives, all kinds of pressures were brought to, all of it violating liberties and the principles of truth and the principles of love. If you, un- you didn't have to know the science. The methods were obviously not godly. Millions have accepted and engaged in the practices that are satanic in origin, including many in church leadership, just like the Jews 2,000 years ago. I am not questioning the Jewish nation being called by God. I'm not questioning the church being called by God. The leadership of that organization apostatized. And the leadership that violates the, the principles of God's kingdom are not representing the kingdom of God anymore. God's people are to, were to recognize the warning in AD 70 and flee the physical Jerusalem. God's people today are to recognize this warning and flee. Not physically, but we are to cut out of our hearts 
and affections and loyalties and devotion, the ties to any organization and system that practices ungodly methods on its people. You can't align and support it. Come out of Babylon. Leave the system behind. In God's kingdom, we are to align ourselves with the principles of truth, love, and liberty. And then I've got a couple minutes I wanted to get into something a little little more controversial because we're talking about manipulation of minds. In uh, Monday's lesson, it's talking about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. We have a work to do. God has work to do. We kind of mentioned that earlier in the cooperative effort. What happens to people who do not apply themselves to achieve usefulness in this world when they have the ability to apply themselves? Okay, let's be very clear. They have the ability, but they do not apply themselves to achieve usefulness. What happens to them? They lose the opportunity. The parable of the talents. Five talents, ten talents, one talent. If you bury your abilities and don't invest them, this is a law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you lose it. This is not a punishment from God. It's how he built us. The only way we can grow and have mastery and strength is through application and investment of our time and resources in godly ways. So a method of Satan that he would employ to undermine this would be replacing actions, uh, replacing usefulness by relieving burdens of people under the purported loving support for them. We won't take the burdens off there. We won't allow them to carry the weight themselves. We won't allow them to work out the problem themselves. You know, that math problem is pretty hard. Here's the answer. You don't have to really struggle to figure that math problem out. Okay, we'll just give you the answer. We'll carry it for you. We'll pay your bills. We'll do this for you. And we're talking, again, people who are capable here. We're not talking about people who have disabilities. What happens to a person we give to people, give to them what they could accomplish for themselves? Do they get stronger or they get weaker? Understand, this is a false form of compassion. It's actually destructive. It's antagonistic to the methods of God. God gave Adam and Eve useful work to do in Eden. In Eden. It's useful. It's good for us. We develop. We grow. We expand. Satan's lie is that love just gives without thought. Just gives without understanding. With Just gives. No. Love actually has to understand the principles involved, the, the protocols of God, how reality works, and gives what's best in the circumstance. Not just gives. Let me give you an example of manipulation of people's minds that, uh, that, that has been happening in our society. And I'm almost afraid to, hmm, should I weigh into this or not in the last four and a half minutes? Uh, okay, I'm going to. Because I, I, and, and, and let, me, let me just say, I'm going to do this because I want you to understand this is about minds. The battle between Christ and Satan is for minds. It's about how your minds get manipulated on emotional issues uh, when you may, may, uh, may not really fully perceive it. Uh, Consider the recent Supreme Court ruling that overturned Roe v. Way. We're not going to talk about the morality of Roe v. Way. That's not the question here. What we're going to talk about is how political leaders use the issue to manipulate you to create a, a um, reliable voting block to keep them in power. And this is an issue. See, under the, in the United States of America, the legal authority for all government institutions comes from the Constitution. The Constitution establishes a legal framework for the legislative, judicial, and administrative branches of government. One of the Supreme Court's uh, responsibilities in this regard is to monitor and enforce the legal framework. They're kind of like referees in a football game. If somebody steps out of bounds, the referee stops the play. You're out of bounds. No go there. The referees do not establish the boundaries. 
The boundaries of our government were established in the Constitution. The Supreme Court functions like referees to tell the other players on the field, the legislators and the administrators, legislators, Congress and senators, administrators, presidents, uh, and their various cabinet members, when they're stepping outside the bounds of the framework that the Constitution authorized people to act upon. For instance... The Constitution authorizes that all citizens have the right to free exercise of their religion. If Congress were to pass a law signed by the president that mandated all citizens must be baptized into the Christian church, the Supreme Court would rule that's out of bounds. That law would be struck down. That's a a law outside the framework. You can't make that law. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. But inside the framework... Congress is free to make up almost any law they want. For instance, the the Constitution, nowhere in the Constitution does it give citizens the right for government-provided health care. It's not in the Constitution. But Congress can pass a law to provide government-provided health care, Medicare and Medicaid, which they have done through legislation that the Congress is authorized to do under the authority of the Constitution. And the Supreme Court rules that's inside the bounds. You can do that. Now, the question of the abortion question. Nowhere in the Constitution does it deny nor give the right to an abortion. It doesn't speak to it at all. Congress, but Congress, just like with the health care, has always had the right to pass a law to make it legal or pass a law to make it illegal federally. They've always had the ability to do that. Why haven't they? Consider this. Since 1970, early 70s ruling of Roe v. Wade, where the Supreme Court made a ruling on this issue, has there ever been a time when either party has controlled House, Senate, and the presidency with supermajorities. Which means they could have, at that time, sealed the deal. Legislated, passed a law, sealed the deal, either making it illegal or legal, either way. But why didn't they? Understand how you're being manipulated. And that is how, and the recent Supreme Court ruling simply said, that's the constitutional framework. If you want abortions legal in this country, the legislators need to pass a law and make it so. The judiciary doesn't determine that. Okay, That's all that happened in this recent ruling. But the point is, why in the last, what is that, 40, 50 years? In 50 years, why hasn't either side in their legislation settled the issue, made it federal law like Medicare? Because they want an emotional issue to create a reliable voting block that will consistently vote for them in every presidential election, one way or the other. Hey, you better vote for us, because if you vote for the other party, they could overturn Roe v. Wade. Put a justice on, uh, because they're going to put the Supreme Court. They've kept it as a constant emotional issue to have people. They could have put it to rest, and once they did, well, people aren't going to come out in mass to vote on on this issue anymore, because it's a decided issue. Notice I didn't speak to the morality either way. I just showed how people manipulate other people. What's happening in our society right now in the aftermath, just discern, step back and look at the framework. They can settle this issue right now if they want. They have the legislative authority to do it, and they could do it. 
They're not. What they're more interested in is getting you out to vote for somebody to keep them in power, not to actually do things that are in the best interest of their constituency. It's a grand manipulation for political power, and that's, what, that's what's happening. So it's a manipulation of mine. And that's why we don't get into politics, and hopefully I didn't sound like I was advocating for one side or the other, because I'm really not. I'm just trying to expose the process and how minds get manipulated. All right, well, let's close with prayer, and then I'm going to talk about a big announcement. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the creator of reality, and your laws do not work like human laws, that, uh, that politics don't play a role in how heaven runs. Reality does. And that reality originates in you and your character of love. And we pray that you will uh, pour your spirit out, give us wisdom, discernment, guide us in this ministry, that we can take this final message of your kingdom to the world to set hearts and minds free, that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.